0: You are listening to the 3CR podcast of In Psychedelia. In Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au.
1: The
2: drug war began with the process of colonisation. The
3: current measures are based on
0: fear.
1: Hello and thank you for tuning in to In on 3CR. Uh, thank you also to Freedom of Species, the program that you just heard from. They'll be back next week from 1pm. Uh, you can find their po- podcast and more information about the program at 3cr.org.au. On um, this afternoon's program and in all of our programs, we discuss a number of ways that psychoactive plants and chemicals or drugs interact with our society, our culture, our laws, and uh, us as individuals. Uh, we do that through... Uh, hearing direct experiences from people, hearing from experts, and keeping track of what's going on in the news. And this afternoon, we'll be doing just that. Uh, a bit later in the program, hearing from Dr. Stephen Bright, Dr. Liam Engel, and Katie Hornshaw, who was the author of a recent piece for AODMediaWatch.com.au, focused on uh, a Ben Cousins interview on Channel 7 that was a uh, Very uncomfortable watching. I don't even know anybody who watches uh, free-to-wear TV anymore. So instead, maybe you've got Netflix and maybe you're looking for something to watch, and if you are... Then check out the new one, Have a Good Trip Adventures in Psychedelics, a documentary that compiles a selection of candid interviews recorded over 11 years with actors and celebrities. And here's comedian Sarah Silverman. That's
0: always when you say, I don't feel
2: anything. It's usually the tipping point. Do I feel anything? What is feeling?
1: The documentary is called Have a Good Trip Adventures in Psychedelics and is now available on Netflix The first interview we'll be hearing on this afternoon's show is the chat uh, that Ash and I had with Ronnie Grigg from the Zero Block Society, which is a not-for-profit organisation he's recently formed, but he has decades of experience as a peer worker among drug users in Vancouver, Canada. So we hear from him about what's going on in Canada, especially now with uh, COVID-19 adding to uh, what was already a difficult situation in Canada. If you would like to know more about vaping, or perhaps you already do, but people are posing arguments to you that you're not sure how to respond to, highly recommend checking out ATHRA, the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association. athra.org.au is their website. And just this past week, Dr. Colin Mendelson from ATHRA ran a Facebook live stream uh, answering a few common questions that he's had around vaping and you can find the whole thing on ATHRA's Facebook page.
4: The Royal Australasian College of Physicians recently announced their support for vaping, which is consistent with the uh, decision of the College of GPs and the College of Psychiatrists. So several of the major medical associations have actually come on board recently. Unfortunately, the AMA is still very hostile to vaping, and we don't expect much action there. Yesterday, the Western Australian Parliament Nanny State Inquiry tabled its report and recommended changes to the vaping laws to liberalise some of the laws, and that was a big step forward. The
1: Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association is at athra.org.au, and that was Dr Colin Mendelsohn. Uh Find his live stream on Facebook some music now. Byron Bay band Tora with Morphine. This is In psychedelia on 3CR.
4: To 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
5: Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts, and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew, and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig
6: will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence.
7: But you can help. Visit thesoundofscience.com.au
4: now.
3: The segment that we're about to hear was recorded uh, just over a week ago, and we will be hearing part two of an interview that we recorded with Ronnie Grigg, a harm reduction worker from Vancouver in Canada. And he'll be talking about how COVID-19 has impacted services and workers in the harm reduction space and a little bit about a not-for-profit that is set up.
1: Okay, so that that
3: kind of brings us up to um, uh, essentially pretty close to the present. And then in amongst this whole crisis, we've seen COVID-19 sort of explode across the globe. Um, how has that impacted on uh, the kind of services that you work with? Well, we're, we're roughly,
6: you know, six or seven weeks into um, the, you know, the emphasis on social distancing and sort of like the shutdown of, uh, you know, whatever a city or economic activity, however you want to describe that. And um, it was it was amazing just the it, it, it was um, the anticipation of of the the uh, coronavirus in um, this neighborhood was really startling because their uh, social distancing is again a luxury, right? Like if, if people are living in tents in a park or on the sidewalk or you know, there's all this it's sort of survival huddling. How do you say hey six feet apart, you know, or whatever, right? It becomes ridiculous. And, uh, and so there was a concern that this, this community would have this, a double impact. And um, um, do you know what's going on right now? Uh, this is side. It's 7 p.m. over time. And that's the time of day when the honoring of, you know, so all my neighbors are like starting to scream and, and make noise uh, for frontline health care workers. So that's happening right now. <laughs> So, so yeah, so, so the, the impact of that was that, um, um, services like the, um, the, uh, supervised consumption sites, um, and, and any of the clinics and, and all of the services they had to provide for social distancing, right? So what they did was cut down to. Um, less uh, but you, a little bit less than half of um, you know for example insight has 13 booths and we could only open up every second one so we were down to uh, six booths uh, so that's less than half uh, people weren't allowed in the waiting room they had to wait on the sidewalk up front and and uh, there's four supervised consumption sites within that two-block area in this neighborhood and and they've all been equally as affected um so so that just means that that increased the the density of the homeless uh population on the sidewalks they, because they, they didn't have the opportunity to access services one of the other impacts is how um in an overdose response how oxygen is administered you know if you have um uh what's called a ball valve mask like you know when or an ambu bag where where oxygen is being forced into into the lungs of the person experiencing the overdose Um, there's a concern about the virus being um, uh, made airborne from those masks so it's changed how we can administer oxygen it means we have to clear out the room um, of everyone including staff except for the ones that have like full uh ppe um, or in some sites are trying to get the person outside, um, you know, outside of the site. So it's, it's, it's had this massive impact on services and it's really uh, increased the density of the, um, the homeless population uh, um, in, in this, you know, four block area. Um, and, and so then the outcome of that is there's been an increase in overdose deaths. And ironically enough, there have been confirmed cases of, of COVID, but there's been no outbreak, right? There's been isolated cases. So it's, and, and no one was really expecting that, right? If people were expecting, like, once one person gets it, it's going to impact this neighborhood greatly because of the density of homeless people. And so far, it, that hasn't been the case.
3: And do you know yet um, whether or how COVID-19 has impacted the drug market locally? Well,
6: um, you know, it, it, like like I, I know it from like a street level, rumor level, but I mean, we obviously can't weigh those outcomes because of, you know, sort of black market mechanisms. But there is some concern that there are because uh the vancouver's a port city and port activity is is you know very minimal now um that that the supply is impacted but you know i i don't know i i you know i mean there's still a, a an illicit supply of drugs you know on the streets and so i don't know but you know there there's a concern that there's some scarcity but there's plenty around
3: and is there um is there much concern from the harm reduction workforce about how they're protecting themselves in this complex situation
6: yeah absolutely it's it's sort of you know these these um you know, in, in uh, like I mentioned, uh, or maybe it was you uh, in introducing me, um, Ash, um, that I've incorporated a nonprofit, and and one of the outcomes of this nonprofit is not only to, to support harm reduction work and like the training and and that kind of stuff that I've been doing, but uh, to support the worker, right? And in all of these crisis scenarios. Um, there is this invisibilization of the actual boots on the ground, the people who are um, um, actually doing the, the 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 physical reality of the response, right? And and um, I mean, there's there's some acknowledgement of of frontline healthcare workers and and the risks that they're taking, but so much of it, like let's face it, is we we don't we don't have a clue what people are walking into in a lot of these environments and in hospital situations and likewise in in these harm reduction situations you know people are willingly some some are medical professionals like nurses and so on but you know most are just you know people big-hearted people who would give a shit pardon me um but like you know and they're not like highly paid professionals right they're, they're just people who care. And, uh, and they're being depended on increasingly to, to respond to a public health crisis with very minimal supports, you know?
3: So, something that has been, I guess, more topical uh, locally here is the conversation about the role and value of peer workers in harm reduction. Do you, do you have a, a large peer? workforce kind of working in the downtown East side yeah I mean that's that's a great
6: example of so for the um, when I was uh, um, uh, I mentioned that there are um, in a two block radius there are four supervised consumption sites and three of them are um, primarily staffed by peers right? Uh, people with lived experience and uh, sometimes those people are I- currently experiencing street homelessness or living in shelters or whatnot as well. so um uh, not only people who have experienced the the trauma and the stress of of having a substance dependency, but also might currently be be um, living out those impacts and um, and they they're often they're they're um pay is through stipends you know um um so um you know they're 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 the a pretty gritty bunch and they're the people who will um um put their own um You know sort of for like like risk themselves more willingly because they have active relationships with the people who uh they need to respond to right and uh it's it's uh, um it it's it's a significant ethical issue to be to refuse to respond to an overdose right like you know we can't put people in those situations right so um yeah the impact on the on the peer community has been significant, and and honestly, my concern is is that yet again they are being required to uh, do the heavy lifting on a on a significant public health crisis. You know,
3: we've been talking for an hour, and I'm just getting started. Um, I I was just, uh, I I think we've covered a lot of ground. So I was just inviting you to um, delve into any more of the topics related to COVID-19 and drug use in Vancouver. Or if you want to um, tell us a little bit more about what your not-for-profit Zero Block Society uh, does and hopes to achieve. Okay, thank you for that opening. Um,
6: As far as... um the COVID, the the situation with COVID nineteen. Um, one of the current things that's happening, like really fresh, uh, yesterday and today, is that we've had um, a tent city, in a in a city park in this neighborhood um, that's existed for almost two years, um, uh, and that. Um, there's been a lot of uh, request for, you know, like Vancouver's got a significant tourism industry and hotels are, are sitting uh, empty. And so a program has been started yesterday and today to move people from that tent city into a Holiday Inn. Um, and so um, that's that's sort of like an obvious like policy solution, but it's a very complex execution. Of of a plan, right? Um, Because obviously it's not uh, permanent housing. Um, uh, It's it's important that people have the the will to choose as opposed to being forced. Um, And so there's this complexity of of this opportunity being provided for people, but also the park is being cleared out. So it which. You know, not everyone is going to go to a hotel that's outside of this neighborhood because they need to be able to access um, their their supply. You know, and safe supply is complex as well because um, you know people are wired to opiates, ever stronger opiates, and pharmaceutical opiates aren't. You know, you know, like they may they may not be sufficient, and pharmaceutical amphetamine may not be uh, uh, comparable to crystal meth or so on. So people, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's a very complex situation. Um, um, but both policy and boots on the ground are trying to make these things happen. And, and obviously the people who are experiencing the um, the marginalization are, are, are trying to experience it. So I just sort of wanted to give some voice to that um that effort it's actually it's just like uh three blocks from my house where this park is and it also happens to be a park that i lived across the street from and where my daughters like played in the playground there you know so it's sort of it's really close to home for me and um um and uh uh really understanding the complexity of trying to um in in a dignified way uh, provide these opportunities for people without it being a forced outcome which generally amounts to resistance and violence and, and that kind of stuff so so that's something that's fresh uh, that's happening as a response um, uh, and then um, as far as uh, you know if, if I can speak a little bit to my, my own project my, my fledgling nonprofit um i've 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 got two main projects uh one is related to like some um like um technology responses to harm reduction and um and the other is to this ongoing like sort of training and support of harm reduction outside of vancouver so one of the things that i've been working on uh, um, i've been invited by um a couple of nonprofits in in Mexico that are located in some border cities and they're providing harm reduction services there and again if i'm describing complex situations here you can imagine the complexity of the mexico side of a border city you know um with with um a migrant caravans and and you know uh de- people being deported and you know it's this this massive holding area. So so one of the, um, I'm, I'm, I'm helping uh, them to, to uh, develop peer programs for drug users in those communities in Tijuana and in Mexico. It's one project. Um, obviously everything's been disrupted and messed up through uh, this COVID shutdown and whatnot. But uh, so I'm, I'm trying to support the, um international um, um, harm reduction efforts, um, and uh, I'm, I'm the other project that I'm working on is um, just a uh, an app that supports access to services. And trust me, no like tech whiz or developer kind of guy. I'm just I'm um, uh, I've just been a cloud nonprofit, one of the universities here to, uh, you know, kind of provide a coding opportunity for computer science students and a nonprofit solution. So those are the two projects that are most um, prominent for me.
3: Great. Well, we have been talking for quite a while, so um, I think I might wrap it up there. Um, we've been talking on Encyclopedia with Ronnie Grigg, founder of Zero Block Society and longtime harm reduction worker based in downtown Vancouver. Thanks for joining us on the show this afternoon. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you. And that was part two of our interview with Ronnie Grigg. If you want to listen to the first part of that interview, you can go to the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au slash Listen back to last week's show. And if you want to check out Ronnie's not-for-profit, Go to thezeroblock.org and you can read more about it there.
0: For more information, visit inpsychedelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. On
3: Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. We'll continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening.
2: The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please, donate today. Call 9231 3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter.
3: Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of
2: strength we've got here today
1: You're tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Also, uh, the In podcast, which you can find uh, by heading to the 3CR website and following the links to our program page. We're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and we put out uh, some video stuff every now and then, and uh, definitely the articles uh, and interviews that you hear on the program, you'll find more information in our social media uh, and on our website, so please subscribe to that. My name's Nick, and now I have a segment for you from aodmediawatch.com.au. AOD, or Alcohol and Other Drug Media Watch, is based on the same premise, basically, as the ABC show Media Watch. Uh, So it's aiming to highlight poor examples of journalism regarding alcohol and other drug issues, of which there are many. But also they've got a um, a, a positive goal. They are aiming to also work with journalists and highlight uh, exemplars of good journalism when it comes to alcohol and other drug issues doesn't have to be perfect but if you can see that the journalist is making the effort uh, that'll get a nice tick from them there are guidelines for journalists and information and resources on how to chat to the media if you're somebody who uh, has lived experience or would like to share your story with the media uh, then there are some tips and hints there aodmediawatch.com.au uh, and before we get stuck into uh, the segment today for ARD Media Watch Uh, another article has come out from them since uh, we recorded this And it's one of those good examples I was just talking about. Uh, 60 Minutes ran a special on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and the article on AOD Media Watch is 60 Minutes, try psychedelics and have a surprisingly good trip. They were highlighting that the 60 Minutes piece uh, wasn't all sensationalism and wasn't all negativity. Uh, There still were some problems with it, and I'm sure you can join in on the discussion if you want to discuss the issues that you thought were with it uh, on social media, especially on the uh, Australian Psychedelic Society uh, Melbourne Facebook group or any of the other ones depending on which capital city you're in. But on this episode, we're taking a look at a one-hour program uh, from Channel 7 on the former AFL footballer Ben Cousins called Coming Clean. It was aired on Channel 7 on the evening of Sunday, the 29th of March, and you'll hear some clips from that in this uh, piece. Uh, also, just a little piece from Channel 9 News uh, at the top here because there has been some evolution in the story since we recorded this one as well. Late, fairly late last night um, on all-news all
8: websites um, that Ben Cousins had been stopped uh, in a car that was driving erratically. They searched the car, found methamphetamine, and he's been arrested for possession.
3: Ben Cousins'
5: latest trouble with the law began when he was paid a huge sum for a television interview, according to his lawyer. The fallen footballer's ex-partner allegedly tried to get some of the money, and now he's facing stalking and drug possession charges.
8: They've, they've given somebody who's got a known substance use issue um, a lot of money to do this interview, Mm-hmm. What? What did he, Forget about the interview itself. Um, That would have been, we don't know how long ago the interview happened, but even the airing of it, like you were saying in your piece, Katie, how would have he felt watching that on TV?
1: The arrest of Cousins following the program going to air and the publication of the AOD Media Watch piece further highlights some of the problems of the Channel 7 special on Cousins. Dr Stephen Bright, Senior Lecturer of Addiction at Edith Cowan University, and Dr Liam Engel, Adjunct Research Fellow at Edith Cowan University, are the reviewers of the AOD Media Watch article entitled, Are You a Vulnerable Celebrity? Why not try meth with the Seven Network?, written by op-ed columnist and features writer and author, Katie Hornshaw.
5: What you're about to watch is a documentary we started making in early 2008. At that stage, I didn't know where it would lead. But I thought it was important to have a record of the things that were happening to me. I understand that some of the footage you see in this film is very troubling and it doesn't always depict me in the best light. But I feel there's some real lessons to be learned here and I think some good can come from it for everyone.
0: Seven opens with footage of uh, Ben Cousins from 10 years ago. He's clearly uh, media trained, very polished, makeup on staring straight at the camera, you know, absolutely uh, poster boy uh, and speaking about his uh, struggles with addiction. They then uh, cut from that and then dramatically cut to Ben Cousins now uh, who the difference could not be more stark. I must admit I found it really shocking. I actually hadn't seen Ben Cousins for a long time. So when the documentary opened, I thought that the initial um, Ben, from who was, which actually turned out to be from 10 years ago, was him now. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, he looks really good, actually. And then they all of a sudden bring in this Ben who's um, in his current state uh, and he looks quite disheveled. Uh, he's got a long ponytail and unshaven uh, beard. And it, 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 he looks aged and he just looks a lot um, less confident uh, and so they obviously do that to have that specific effect on viewers just it, it, the, to me it seemed the whole point of it was to go look look how bad he looks look how different he looks uh, and then as if that wasn't rubbed in enough uh, they uh, immediately make several uh, comments about uh, cousins going from a big star to as uh Basil Zemplis puts it at one stage.
7: Brownlow to Garbo inside yeah, jail.
0: I, 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 I. It doesn't even have like a nice ring to it or anything, but I, I, I think I counted six or seven times in that first 15 minutes they make some sort of reference to then having gone from uh, this wonderful, glorious star status down to a jobless criminal addict right from the start, it flags what sort of program this is going to be. They're not going to make any real attempt uh, to uh, educate the public or to try to minimise some of the harms around addiction. In that way, I don't think they can really call it documentary. And what they are going to do is put the spotlight on the most humiliating aspects of Ben's fall from grace in recent years, basically so that the audience can just gawk and judge and have an avenue to feel superior seven is uh catering to the audience's most craven sort of basest instincts of oh let's look at the you know the fallen footy star and and that'll make us feel good about ourselves because we can feel so much better than him look how badly he's doing And obviously, uh, in doing so, Seven clearly associates using methamphetamine as being a guaranteed one-way ticket to hell. They imply over and over again that the reason that this has happened to Ben is because he used methamphetamine and that if he had been able to not use methamphetamine or avoid using methamphetamine or stop using methamphetamine, that he wouldn't be where he is. There's no clarification whatsoever that those two things, you know, Ben's trajectory and and the meth are two separate things. They're always regarded throughout the whole documentary as one, you know, the meth caused the downward trajectory of Ben's life. You look different.
5: Uh yeah, maybe a little bit.
7: So the ponytail, the beard, there's nothing more to it than that. It's not an act of defiance or something like that.
0: No, no. Um. So much of the time that substances can lead people to um, end up in a position that they're struggling has got little to do with the the substances themselves and a lot to do with the way that person perceives themselves, the way other people perceive them. If you have in your head, I'm taking ice, this is a one-way ticket to to hell, you know, this is going to, uh, you know, ruin my life, Well, obviously it's much more likely to happen because that's the way you're thinking about it. That's the way society thinks about it. It's
2: positive reinforcement, right? People become the label that you give them. And if the only label available to you is that you're a meth zombie, then it's impossible for you to become anything else.
0: I think one of the reasons that meth and uh, heroin do actually have higher rates of addiction for people who tried them in the first place, although they're nowhere near what people think, obviously, but they do have higher rates compared to some other substances, the type of person who is going to try that substance in the first place has almost already said to themselves, well, I know that you know once you try one of these substances, you're, you're going to get addicted and there's no other place that you're going to end up. So it's almost like by the time they try that substance, they're already sort of presupposing that themselves.
2: Uh, it's been like framed as an instrument of self-harm. So people go out and use the instrument of self-harm.
7: Uh, are you still using drugs?
5: No, no, and
7: you know. So I'm clear. <clears throat> Can you tell me hundred percent you're not using drugs anymore?
5: Uh, well, it's, it's 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 you know it's, it's I'm, not really, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm I'm going to ask that.
0: Consistently throughout the program, Basil Zemplis and the seven producers. Imply that Ben, because of his quote-unquote choice to continue to use meth, that that makes him essentially immoral and selfish. They don't come right out and say that, but that's obviously the the implication. He is asked over and over and over again whether he is still using. Uh, Every time he's asked, he struggles to answer directly.
7: Can you tell us... Categorically, Ben, have you used drugs in this time?
0: Uh, no. Um... It's obvious that he feels extremely uncomfortable with the question and doesn't want to engage with it. And despite that, uh, he is asked again and again. And Basil Zemplis is so clearly trying to get that gotcha moment. And, it, you know, at one stage uh, says... It's a simple question, you know, almost uh, aggressively to, to Ben, to just desperately trying to get him. Clearly they want him to admit, yes, I am still using. And then Basil also asks, why didn't you stop?
7: Why didn't what happened to Maney shock you straight?
5: Well, it did, I think.
7: Yeah, it did. But you used drugs again after his death?
0: Mm. Uh. The implication again and again is, A, that uh, Ben Cousins had a choice and has, um, continu- has chosen to continue to use or to not uh, recover, and B, by making that choice, uh, that he is a worse person than he would be if he, if he made... The choice to be, as they refer to it in the documentary, clean. It makes Seven's position on addiction pretty clear. They obviously believe that someone can simply uh, choose to recover if they want to, and that, by contrast, if someone is still using, that, that they must have made a choice to keep using. and that they must simply be refusing to recover. I wholly disagree with this characterization of addiction. Uh, Although I believe that everybody has free will and obviously uh, people to some extent have power over their own choices, I think that there are hundreds uh, of socio-cultural and economic factors that get in the way of that wish and that even if they try that um, hamper their uh, ability to uh, continue with that. Things like poverty, they might not have uh, the money to spend on expensive rehabs, lack of access to the right types of services uh, to help them recover. A lot of stigma plays a huge part. A lot of people are incredibly afraid to go and ask for help or access help in the first place because they're afraid of being judged. And as we can see with Ben's uh, particular situation, this is probably a huge factor for him because he's famous. He knows uh, what he's going to um, encounter when he comes into treatment facilities. Everybody knows him. So there's that judgment factor. There's the fact that it might be reported in the media that, oh, Ben's trying to get help, and then if he fails again, that's looked at as a a failure. I thought it was incredibly uh, unhelpful and just willfully ignorant of Seven to continually throughout this documentary represent recovery as something that Ben could choose to do if he wanted to, but he just is such a terrible person that he um, chooses not to. This sort of representation leads encourages stigmatising attitudes in the community, not just for Ben Cousins but for people watching the program. If they already have a belief that, say, they have a loved one or a sister or a brother uh, who is using some sort of substance and they believe that that person is just using due to their own choice, well, this cements that view and cements that type of stigmatising. Attitudes. A lot of people would say, "Oh well, I'm you know I'm not I'm pretty strong. I should be able to manage that." But the reality
6: is, it doesn't matter who you are. If you use it often enough, you will become addicted to it. It is that sort of substance.
7: It's a very powerfully addictive substance.
2: If you think about the the narrative that uh, this piece is providing about people who use methamphetamine and people who use drugs and they're really buying into this stereotype that Katie was describing as kind of like a downward spiral. Whether or not that is the case, the implications of uh, kind of spreading that as a message about drugs uh, is kind of making it happen again, right? And that's something that Steve and I have been talking about with some other colleagues and something that we think is really important to bring into the, the media is... What are the positive messages about drugs um, because yeah. if we don't speak about the positive message about drugs it's impossible for people to learn about them and to have those experiences and that's not to say that all things with drugs are positive but very clearly if we look at this documentary all things that it has to say are negative and so if you were a young person using methamphetamine and you watch this documentary what are you going to think of yourself probably not very good things So I think that's kind of a responsibility that, sure, it's kind of ethically complicated, well not ethically complicated, but maybe legally complicated or concerning because uh, media are very afraid of of being implicated in promoting drug use, but uh, if, if you're serious about, you know, helping the drug problem, I think a key thing that you need to do is provide positive message about drugs, and I think if you ask Ben the right questions, he probably could say how methamphetamine has helped him and probably, you know, in this terrible time in his life, especially if he has ADHD, you know, meth might be something he needs. Maybe not, but it should be considered. I need to take some dexies and stuff like that because there, there's, some, there's some things about my
5: personal character that before I picked up in a year or whatever that, 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 that need to be managed. I don't want to be off my head you know, it's not to, it's not to get yes. off my head or whatever. It's just to function. Do you understand? Like, it's to function. It's a function. I just want to be, like, to lead a normal life. I'm not asking to take, I don't want to take 25 of them.
0: So it's not that you want to line up a rack of coke tonight. It's, it's not, not a party thing anymore. No.
5: Been, I don't Like, I, don't do it. I just want to be normal.
8: From a mental health perspective, and you know, from from my experience as a psychologist, um, you know, Ben's lived most of his life under public scrutiny, and we know that that's difficult. We've seen celebrities um, come undone as a result of the pressure that comes with being in the public um, public light, and you know, being unwell in terms of having mental health issues is hard enough dealing and managing with that and dual diagnosis with comorbid mental illness is difficult enough to do on your own, let alone doing it in the public light. Ben's pretty much been the poster child for the anti-drug message. So throughout the narrative is that the reason Ben has gone from AFL football star to Garbo in prison is because of the methamphetamine. No other things are taken into consideration. Nothing's taken into consideration in terms of the social factors, in terms of being in the public line, his um, his family history, his genetics. From Based on the footage, this is a man that's clearly unwell and it's, it w- in my opinion, it was unethical to go ahead with a number of the interviews conducted, but particularly the interview that was conducted in the car. To get him to come over, I was going to give him my Brownlow low to, to mediate. It was that,
5: that's how big a thing it was, you know, and say, listen, we need, because this is not going to get dealt with in the courts. I was going to say, I'll give you that if you can come over and mediate this and I want somebody to tell her that if, it's, if I'm allowed to see my kids, I get to see them. I said, I've missed half of my kids' lives. I promise you that if I miss all of it, if I get to a point where I don't think I can come back, I promise you I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna pick a cause and I'm gonna come single-mindedly at that cause or with that cause towards you, anybody, everything, and I want there to be carnage. Blood will spill. So it's up to you guys if you want this, change this. You know, and I'm one one person, but it's it's happening to a lot more than just me something's got to happen the jail is half full of people in exactly my situation half and all of them
8: say the same thing it's unclear whether he was drug affected, whether he was maybe experiencing a hypomanic state, but he was clearly agitated. And not only should the interview not gone ahead, it should certainly not have aired. It was not in the public's interest for that footage to have aired because of the implications it has in terms of perceptions of uh, fathers and, and custody issues. And more so, um, it, it's incriminating. It actually... It actually Ben makes idle threats that potentially incriminate him, and so that certainly shouldn't have aired. It was unethical to air that. Uh, when he was in when he was uh, in the park, he was he was talking about his ADHD. I'm
1: on the
5: Dexys all the gear. I told you that. Yeah. So I want I, the Dexys, so I'm not on the gear. Well, I said, if you, if you don't give me the, the Dexys, I am going to be on the gear. But so well, when you're like, on the Dexys, you're not on the gear? No. Yeah. Dexys calm you down. And the gear. I'll I just thank the Lord that I've got it. You know, I would have probably killed my mum, you know. But you know what I mean? Someone close to me would have me. Well, if you weren't on gear, gear
2: calms you down.
5: Of course it does. Like meth calms you down, ice calms you down. I thought it calms you, it, it puts you up, not calms you down. Of course it calms me down does inject, that's what
8: it does Look, i don't know whether he's got adhd or not I, I, as as a psychologist i can't make that diagnosis based on some tv footage and you know what i know about being uh, what i know about being cousins i'd need to sit with him for a couple of hours and speak with him and gather all the history and information around that but the way they dismissed it um adhd is is a serious mental health condition and people that do experience adhd often experience problems with substance use it is very it's a very common comorbidity um, and like Ben said uh, people that have ADHD will often use am- in fact they often prescribe amphetamine as a way to um, calm them it's, it doesn't really calm them it turns on the prefrontal cortex it allows them to concentrate it allows them to control their impulses a bit better and I think what we saw in the car was him coming undone because he wasn't able to control his impulses he wasn't able to self-regulate which is which is a sign of ADHD and so so, you know, as a researcher and as a clinician, um, the way in which the journalists engaged with Ben was unethical because. It, it wasn't empathic they they weren't really looking to look for his side of the story what they were looking for was those gotcha moments um they were doing it in a way that was confrontational that threatened his autonomy and every time they threatened his autonomy you could see him push back and that's the reason why the journalists that were involved in these interviews it basil the interview in the car the interview at the park i could use this in my course to demonstrate this is not how you interact with another human being I I teach counselling skills to undergraduate and postgraduate students and the journalists in this piece did every single thing that I'd tell them not to do when interacting with somebody.
7: When you can't see Bobby and (coughs) Angela, what are the things that you miss?
5: Uh, Well, it's just, you know... um,
7: Oh, miss. You weren't there for your kids because you went to jail because you made threatening and abusive calls, and a lot of them.
5: Yeah, um, at the time, I, I, I certainly wasn't aware of um, or or understood the the impact that I was having on on. On people around me. Because you were affected by drugs at the time? I uh, was we'll just caught up in the in the, in the emotion of the situation.
1: Former AFL footballer Ben Cousins there speaking with Channel 7 reporter Basil Zempelas on the special Coming Clean, which aired on Sunday the 29th of March on Channel 7. This is En Psychedelia on 3CR. Subscribe to our podcast at the website 3cr.org.au or find our website enpsychedelia.org. You're currently listening to a special based on the AODMediaWatch.com.au article. Are you a vulnerable celebrity? Why not try meth with The Seven Network? And finally, this afternoon, Katie Hornshaw, Dr. Stephen Bright and Dr. Liam Engel from AOD Media Watch discuss the role the media plays in shaping stories around drugs and addiction. I think
0: I, as journalists, we want to make our stories as uh, resonant as possible and, and um Because of that we can, when we're talking about other things, or say telling a personal story or or doing an opinion piece, um, we almost learn to do the exact opposite where we dress our language up and we we try to make it um, as impactful as possible. But you just can't do that. When you're talking about addiction, you have to really stick to the facts um, and provide that balance, use person first language. You know, If you're wanting to do a really uh, out there impactful language story it needs to be uh, about something else because this can affect people's lives if you're doing a story about uh, drug addiction or substance dependency interview people who have had lived experience interview people who have had dependence uh, on substances or uh, even better who are currently dependent on substances you know it's so so rare to see that um, there's just not enough people that have been in the trenches that are that are commenting and I think that would be a huge way to remove stigma because people, um, it, because without seeing these people and without hearing their voices, what else, what other tool do people have but to assume that, that the stereotyping and the stigmatizing attitudes, and and is is you know that's how they're going going to perceive people who use drugs because that's how they're portrayed and they don't see otherwise in their daily lives. So I think that that to me is really
8: important. One of the objectives of AOD Media Watch is to give people in the field more confidence to speak to the media because not enough people have the confidence. They'll say, no, they won't do these interviews. Mm-hmm. And if we go hard on Carol, I feel like it just it reinforces that you don't speak to the media because otherwise, you know, you'll get portrayed in a particular way. Or um, we, we, we want people to talk to the media. We've got guidelines for people on how they should approach the media when the media approaches them. But even if you follow all of those guidelines, things can go pair shape. They've gone pear shaped for me on a number of ca- occasions but I keep I keep at it and I keep doing the interviews um, because uh, they, they, I've had a lot of good interviews as well and I'll always go back to that point. Well, if I don't do this interview who's going to do it? They will find someone to do it and so yeah. we want to encourage people that are experts in the field to feel more confident to, to speak to the media. If we don't agree to these interviews, um, they're just going to fill the void with somebody else that they claim is an expert. So I think it's really important and we encourage people um, through AOD Media Watch to speak to the media, be it consumers, be it uh, experts. But people need to do it, you know, you know, with their eyes wide open, because I think, particularly for people who are inexperienced, and Carol's not inexperienced at all, uh, but particularly for people inexperienced, and for consumers, for example, um, for Ben, for example, you can even as media savvy as he might have been ten years ago, that's not where he yeah. is now. And I think yeah. some of our guidelines around, you know, how you engage with the media as, as a consumer, how you engage with the media as as a, as a, a health professional, or an academic, um, all of those things apply in this particular situation. And I don't think Carol could have done much to have changed the way um, it it went. And if Carol hadn't have done the story, somebody would have filled the void. How do you think the seven piece contributes to people wanting to speak about their lived experience?
0: In that way, it was just absolutely shameful. Um, And I did mention that in the article that if you are someone with lived experience and the media were to contact you after you after seeing that piece i mean what are you going to say
2: like you said katie obviously it's a great idea to interview people with lived experience about drugs if drugs is the topic ideally someone with you know currently lived experience but i'd probably emphasize that the gold standard to go even above that would be to give them a role as a producer or a director that's how i see you know the gold standard of drug research it's the research that has people who use drugs as co-researchers that lead the project um because if you don't have those people having you know their opinion front and center or their their perspective front and center then it's, it's going to get lost and it's exactly the same way we research mental health it's exactly the same way we research indigenous people um when you're dealing with people that are discriminated uh, you need to make the whole purpose of your project what they need because it's it's ultimately it's not even about the story or about the research it's about power redistribution
8: and and that's that's what the issue is So the MindFrames uh, guidelines for reporting on alcohol and other drugs are part of an ongoing evolution to help support the media to communicate about alcohol and other drug issues more effectively and to prevent harm from that communication. So it started with uh, guidelines that were developed by the Australian National Council on Drugs and uh, there were some basic guidelines that were actually endorsed by the Australian Press Council. So the Australian Press Council is the Industry regulated um, body. So it's a bit like the way DrinkWise uh, regulates the alcohol industry. The Australian Press Council uh, regulates uh, what we read, what we see, etc. One of the limitations with the Australian Press Council is because they're an industry regulated body, it can be difficult for them to take action sometimes. So they have general principles that were referred to in this particular piece. So they have principles around reporting things that are in the public interest. They have principles around accuracy and some of the things that the mindframes principles provide guidance around are just really elaborations of those pre-existing basic principles of journalism by the australian press council so following um the australian national Council on Drugs developing these guidelines. They were defunded by the Abbott government. In 2016, Alcohol and Other Drug Media Watch launched and as part of our objectives, we wanted to provide guidance to not only journalists but consumers and experts who are engaging in the media. And we developed some guidelines that elaborated on those earlier guidelines, pointing out the importance of accuracy, um, the harms that can occur when the media create moral panics, the importance of, of having balance when reporting on Story, so talking about the good things as well as the less good things and also getting everybody's side of the story avoiding stereotyping and that's then evolved into the mind frames guidelines which provide some basic principles about communicating about people who use drugs to avoid uh, using stigmatizing language using person first language not referring to people as addicts for example because that's labeling somebody that's not helpful they provide some tips for communicating about alcohol and other drugs in a more helpful way such as um, you know ensuring there's accuracy of the information presented ensuring that they get uh, experts involved in the piece and they also mentioned harmful ways that the media can engage with discussions around alcohol and other drugs particularly through sensationalism which we saw in this story and what they are trying to do is ensure that the language that's used doesn't perpetuate stigma because we know that stigma and the internalization of stigma, reduces help-seeking behaviour. And what MindFrames essentially want to do, they've done this for the past 20 years with mental health, is ensure that the media's reporting leads to increased help-seeking behaviour. And part of that involves um, letting people know that, look, here's the number for Lifeline. If this um, story has upset you or you want somebody to talk to, here's a phone number that you can call when here's somebody you can talk to. Um, And so MindFrames would like to see the media do this with reporting on alcohol and other drugs as well well, so that at the end of a story, there's information for people who have watched it that would like to seek some support and provides them with some direction on how they might actually seek that support.
1: The voices of Dr. Stephen Bright, Dr. Liam Engel and Katie Hornshaw on the MediaWatch.com.au piece. Are you a vulnerable celebrity? Why not try Meth with the Seven Network? This has been In Psychedelia. Thank you to all of our guests for this afternoon and stay tuned to 3CR for Queering the Air. Subscribe to our podcast, 3cr.org.au. This is In Psychedelia. See you
0: next week. Does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call 1 800 236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.